Good afternoon, everybody. So we're starting a, um, a new series this week called The Coming Kingdom. Uh, the lectionary is taking us on a journey through the book of Mark. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to jump into this idea of the kingdom that's coming into the world, the ethics, the values, the shape, and the kind of rhythm that it teaches us. Um, before we get into that, let me fly through a couple quick announcements. First, Thursdays, we've started a young adults gathering in Holy Trinity. Um, oh yeah, sorry, if you don't know me, my name is Scott. Hi. Uh, I'm one of the chaplains in UCD, and I'm also the young adult ministry coordinator here in Holy Trinity. Uh, we've started a, a gathering um, it doesn't have a name. That's becoming really annoying. Um, but eventually it'll have a, uh, well, maybe it won't. Uh, anyway, we gather at Thursday nights, 7 o'clock from 7 till 9 uh, in the side room there, which is why if you're wandering through there and you're wondering where did all these couches come from, that's what that's about. I managed to find two secondhand shops in Bray right beside each other and bought four couches and four armchairs for 600 euro, including delivery, which may be the best deal anyone's ever gotten on anything. Um, just be careful when you're sitting down on them because you may fall through them. Um, but so that's our young adults and young professionals gathering. That's uh, for 18 to 30-ish. And then uh, next up, we have Rubicon. Rubicon is happening on October 20th. Um, the lineup for Rubicon, if you don't know what Rubicon is, it's like it's a conversation, a day-long a day conference that's like a conversation about the interplay between faith and culture in Ireland. And it happens in the Sugar Club. And we're really excited about some of the speakers that we have lined up, particularly with how we'll be looking at the kind of Me Too and Church Too movements um, and seeing what, they, um, what it means for us to speak truth and seek justice as communities of faith. So we're going to have Nolene Blackwell from the Dublin Rape Crisis Center. She's absolutely brilliant as an advocate and activist. Ruth Garvey-Williams from Vox Magazine has just completed a huge piece of research about uh, gender roles within the church on the island of Ireland. And one of, the, one of the huge things that she's found is the difference between what people say that they believe and what actually happens in practice. And that's really, really important for us to tease out and hear more about. Um, Ali McGeever, who has been um, uh, championing uh, Me Too conversations as part as her, the uh, Young Women's Development and Engagement Officer, uh, with the YWCA, and then Jared McKenna, who's um, an, an activist and theologian from Australia, and Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament professor, author, and theologian. He's written over 50 books. He'll be joining us on the day as well. And then um, uh, uh, Philly Speaks, um, Felicia will be joining us. She's a, an award-winning performance artist and writer um, based here in Dublin. So it's going to be an absolutely unbelievable day. It'll be... Um, uh, about 30 euro, uh, it's 30 euro for a ticket, and you can get your tickets on wearerubicon.com. We're really, really looking forward to that. Uh, next up, myself, so there's, if you're in the Men at Holy Trinity WhatsApp group, you'll see, you'll have seen a picture of me this morning looking like I don't belong at the front of a church, but rather on top of a Christmas tree, and that's because I'm wearing, I was wearing the, uh, the uh, robes uh, for the traditional service, so that's a cassock, now I know what that's called, and a surplus, which I also, now I know what that's called. Somebody told me I look like an altar boy, um, uh, that was upsetting, particularly since that was my wife. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, uh, um, that, the reason for that is um, uh, three of us, uh, myself, Scott Hill, and Ruth Jives, were all being commissioned as uh, diocesan readers in the Church of Ireland. That, for many of you who like, maybe aren't 
um, didn't grow up on this side of the aisle. How are we putting that these days? Um, if, if you didn't grow up in the Church of Ireland, a, a diocesan reader is essentially somebody who can lead a service. They're not an ordained minister. There's no collar or anything like that. But you can lead, uh, a diocesan reader can lead services around the diocese. It means that we can um, work with other churches around Dublin and Glendalough, um, develop faith communities, uh, and work alongside existing faith communities to see about new expressions of faith. So we're being commissioned. Um, uh, if I have that right as well, that's this is the most lay readers being commissioned from one parish in the last 30 years. And so we're being commissioned together at five o'clock in Christchurch Cathedral next Saturday. So if you're around, we'd love you to join us. And as a bonus, you get to see myself, Scotty and Ruth um, looking like Christmas angels. Um, uh, okay, so the coming kingdom, the reason we're here, apologies. So um, we're, we're in the Gospel of Mark. And, the, and so let, let me tell you a, little, a few things about the, the Gospel of Mark itself. Mark is probably the first Gospel that was written. It's short and it's urgent. It's got momentum. But like Mark is not kidding around. Like it's 15 chapters long. There's no virgin birth. There's no wise men. There's no mangers. There's no Mary. There's no Joseph. It's basically Jesus falls from the sky into the River Jordan, gets baptized, and starts his ministry. Like that's just how it kicks off. And so it begins at pace, and there's this sense of urgency the entire way through it. We hit the ground running at the baptism, and then it's like a roller coaster ride all the way through to his death and resurrection. It was probably written by John Mark, who you might know from the book of Acts. He had a tumultuous relationship with the Apostle Paul. Um, and he may actually have been a follower of Jesus, but not one of the 12 disciples. Um, and and we, we think that most of his gospel is probably based on his relationship with Peter and, how close to, and, and how, what Peter would have known as somebody who was like one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. Um, so as we follow the lectionary, we get a sense of this like building movement and momentum, this movement, the kingdom of God that's bursting into the world through Jesus and through his ministry. And it has a particular feel to it. It has a love that drives it, and it has an ethic that guides it. And in Mark, we find both those things. And John Mark is not just recounting history. He's inviting us to examine and to experience the interactions of, that Jesus has with people so that we will know how to live and love in the coming kingdom. So let's read our passage. This is uh, Mark chapter 9, um, uh, 30 to 32, and then we'll do 33 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. He, then he took a little child and put it among them, taking it, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. So let's start off with how brilliantly tone-deaf um, the... Uh, uh, how brilliantly tone-deaf the disciples are at this particular moment. I love this conversation that they're having with Jesus. Jesus saying to them, so guys, I need you to know, I'm going to be betrayed and killed, and they're going to kill me. And then the disciples have this private conversation afterwards, and they're like, speaking of killing, I'm going to kill it when I'm on top in this new thing that's happening. Like, it's like they're arguing about who's going to be best dressed at Jesus' funeral. Who's going to have the top position when he gets killed and removed? 
They don't really understand it. They don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't get it. They're completely tone deaf to what's happening. And you can just imagine Jesus being like, like so frustrated with them hearing what is going to happen and their only thoughts are what will be my own status after rather than what's going to happen to Jesus here in front of me. What happens next to this person that I'm following? And sometimes I think we can... Um, uh, we, we can pick up the Gospels or we can pick up different books in Scripture, but particularly the Gospels, and think that the, 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 you know, the Gospel writers are just sitting there going, okay, so what happened again? And then they just write down whatever it is, whatever stories come to mind about the, the disciples and about Jesus. But that's, that's not how it went. This was deliberate. And so when Mark tells this story, he's not telling it by accident. He didn't just come back to mind and go, oh, there's a funny thing that happened when the disciples were back being Egypt's. This is actually the middle of three ways in which he says the same thing in three consecutive chapters. This is a theme for Mark. Mark is nailing them on this. In today's passage, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and the disciples debate who will be the greatest. But in the chapter before, he predicts his death and resurrection, and Peter contradicts him. He pulls him to the side, rebukes him, says, that's not what's going to happen. Then in the chapter afterwards, in Mark chapter 10, he predicts his death and resurrection, and James and John sidle up next to him and go, hey, so you know when this new kingdom thing happens? Can we sit at your right and your left when it does? Lads, you're missing the point. They were so caught up with their ideas of what Jesus was about that they didn't understand the coming kingdom. They were asking the wrong questions, missing the point and losing the plot. And it's so easy, I think, for this to be, um, to be something that happens with us, that we end up asking the wrong questions of God and of ourselves and becoming directed by, the wrong, um, by seeking to solve the wrong problems or being driven by the wrong values. It's so funny how like, you can spend your life reading the Bible and you can read a passage like this, you can come back to it after reading other or similar versions of it in other spaces, and you can be struck by how different something is this time when you read it. And one of the things that really struck me about the passage this time was that they have this whole debate while they're moving, but it's when they stop and rest in the house that Jesus asks them the question. Jesus asked them once they had arrived and were resting in the house, what were you arguing about on the way? And it's so easy, I think, when we're going 100 miles an hour, when we're building things, starting things, making things happen, to find ourselves arguing with ourselves about, about what we're pursuing and who we're becoming. And this is why rest and retreat and Sabbath are so important, because they give us that moment to, to stop running, to drop our bags, to gather around the fire and, and take a deep breath and, and hear Jesus ask, what was going on your head, in your head on the way here? What's driving you? What are you fighting for? What are you hoping for? What are you pursuing? I know that you're moving. You're moving fast, and that's great. But where are you moving towards? And so Jesus like, interrupts this, this sense of movement and momentum with them with this question about what is it that you're pursuing? And the disciples, they wanted to be moving towards greatness, and Jesus has no problem with that. I always know that I'm doing okay on a Sunday when I'm here for the traditional service as well as the 12, because it, it, um, uh, Ed Lewis, who uh, I don't know if you've met, but Edward is a... Uh, He's a pillar of this community, um, and he would be a good, would you say he's older than me? By about 60 years. Um, uh, but whenever, whenever Edward preaches and I hear him and I've got something similar in my notes, I'm like, yes, nailed it. Um, but Edward was saying this this morning, Jesus didn't have a problem with their ambition. 
He just had a different definition of greatness. And this is the beauty and the frustration of the coming kingdom. It changes what we define as greatness. It changes what we define as success. And it changes what we define as fulfillment. It changes our priorities, our purposes, and our entire value system about what is and is not worth pursuing. These things are always best explained through a story. And the stories, um, the only stories that I can tell about this are always, they're always the worst possible stories. So, like... I'll tell you this story, and please don't repeat it. <laughs> um, <sighs> a few years ago, good few years ago, 10, 10 years ago, I was invited to go over and speak in the Netherlands. And it was one of my first times being asked away to speak. And, you know, and, you know that, that kind of you know, bigged up the ego a little bit. I was like, oh, you want me to get on a plane because you want to hear what I have to say about God? Yeah, that's cool. I get it. Yeah, no worries. And... Um, and, I, and I, was, I was all about this. And then we had, we had uh, me and my dad, we had a problem with a computer. And spent, I spent all night out at this uh, with a friend of mine um, working on this computer. So I didn't get any sleep, which is just my way of like building up excuses for the horrible thing I did. Um, and I, I, I didn't get any sleep. And I got to the flight. I got to the plane that morning. And I, and I flew over to the Netherlands. I was picked up in Amsterdam. And, and, they, and they, we, we, it was like a three-hour drive down to this camp. And like we get there, and I'm exhausted. And we get into the kitchen, and... and um, and I, I kind of feel like people haven't made enough allowances for the fact that I'm here, you know, like, you know, like, you know Scott's here now. <sighs> and, I, and I asked if I could have a cup of coffee. And she said, sure, it's over there in the corner. And the woman was running the kitchen. And in my head, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head I thought I was like, do you know who I am? It's so horrible. I'll give you this as a guide rule that I've learned to know, that I've, I've come to learn this for myself. If you ever find yourself asking the question, do you know who I am? It's usually you who is mistaken. When it comes to who we're becoming as people and how we invest in people, I think this becomes a barometer. This is something that we've really tried to learn in our youth ministry. And one of the things that I've learned a lot, that I learned a lot when we were doing camps growing up, is that when we would gather leaders together, we wouldn't assign groups for washing up because we just believed that a community of leaders living together shouldn't have to be told that the kitchen should be clean because it should be part of us. And so it became this, this like barometer for how we would choose people to invest in. It's far easier to develop someone's competence than it is to transform their character. It's easier to teach skills to someone with a servant heart than it is to teach servanthood to somebody who has the right skills. See, this is the, the changing definition of greatness, the changing definition of what we're invited to. We're invited to be the greatest by being last, by being least. And then Jesus does this strange thing, and it was really unfamiliar to me. If you had asked me about the conversations that Jesus has in this area, about like the disciples and children, I would have remembered him saying, you have to be like children to enter the kingdom of heaven, but that's not this passage. Or the passage we're going to be looking at next week, which is about causing children to sin or suffer. But this one passage in Mark 9, as we jumped into it this week, I didn't remember it. I didn't remember this moment. And it got me a little lost for a couple of reasons about this idea of welcoming children. Firstly, as we all know, children are notoriously useless and unproductive. <laughs> Secondly, there are no immediate connections between children and servants. It struck me as a really strange comparison. It was only after reading a couple of commentaries that I realized 
um, what Jesus was actually doing here. In the Greco-Roman world, the children and the servants were considered to be the least in any household. The servants, because they were not free, and the children, because they were not free to become or do anything yet. They had no ability to achieve, no ability to create, no ability to change things, transform things, or create wealth. They couldn't produce, and therefore they were least on the ladder. And the servants only ever produced for somebody else. And the kingdoms of this world, everything from the Roman Empire to late-stage capitalism, rewards the strong, the rich, and the powerful, but the coming kingdom is embodied by servants and by children, by a servant heart and by a childlike faith. One of the things I love about what Jesus does here, he doesn't just say include the children, he says welcome the children. Because I think that when we, um, and this is crucial, is that when we are at that time in our development as children and we receive a full, gracious, unconditional welcome to be exactly who we are in a community, it creates a foundation from which later we can actually serve. Because we have nothing to prove because we already know that we belong. Because love does that, it proves that to us. I don't need to earn my place here. I don't need to keep my place here because above all other things in my life, this is my place, this is my family, the place from which I receive my identity and the place from which I go with my calling. And so this coming kingdom is not for kings and princes, it's for servants and children, formerly least, now greatest. Let us pray.